I want to call your attention back again to Second Peter chapter 1. I want to continue in our series. It has taken on a life of its own, hasn't it? We are studying the first 11 verses of this marvelous three-chapter book. And in those first 11 verses, remember, Peter is writing to us about our what? What's he writing to us about? Anybody remember? Our salvation. He wants us to know our salvation. And as we continue and come to that section, verses 5 through 11, he is concerned about making sure, making certain our election and our calling. If you look at verse 10, uh, he tells us that very clearly. Uh, he says, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. So he wants us to be certain. He wants us to know our salvation. He is concerned, if again, if you look at verse 9, uh, that no one be nearsighted, no one be blind, uh, that uh, none of us forget that we have been cleansed from our past sins. So again, he wants us to be certain of these things, and he's concerned he is concerned that we be diligent to make our calling and election sure. So we're talking about assurance. That's, that's our subject. And hence the title of this whole series, How Saved Are You? And uh, before we can actually launch in to those verses, 5 through 11, and I have been anxiously waiting to do that. However, uh, I've been wanting to introduce those verses to you by uh, through a, a, a wider consideration of this uh, issue of assurance, uh, a much broader perspective. And hence, we go back and we look at uh, why people uh, sometimes may have doubts about their salvation. It's easy to talk about salvation. It's easy to preach about salvation. But we must also understand that there are many, many people who, believers, who have a varieties of doubts about uh, their salvation, the extent of their salvation, how comprehensive is it, does it last, can I lose it, and any number of questions and doubts arise. And I know this because I've talked to so many people over the years who express concern about these matters, and uh, they, have do, they do have a measure of uncertainty in their life. It is a sad fact, but nonetheless it is a fact uh, that many people wonder uh, if they are really saved in how long their salvation lasts. It doesn't have to be the case, but nonetheless, it is a, is a sad fact for many, many people. And so we're, we're looking at the reasons. Now, you have on your first page of your notes, you have a number of blanks. You see that? You're not going to be able to keep up with me and fill them in. And although they are going to be up on the screen for you, you may attempt to try to keep up with me. I'm just going to race through these things very quickly, but you do have the, the references. You can look them up. And uh, they are given to indicate just some of the, the blessings that God bestows upon us, some of the mercies, some of the things of which we can, we can just say, if this is true, I must, I must have a, a, a secure salvation. So let me just run through these real quickly with you. Many, many people, uh, again, uh, have doubts in spite, in spite of these truths, in spite of the fact that believers are called the chosen of God in spite of the fact that they are called the elect of God. Uh, they have doubts in spite of the fact that believers are hidden with Christ in God and engraved on the Lord's palms. I love that from Isaiah chapter 49. 
in spite of the fact that our names are written in the book of life from the creation of the world. People still have doubts in spite of the fact that believers are children of God, heirs and co-heirs with Christ, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and we are thus anointed by God. People still have doubts in spite of the fact that believers are the very living letters of Christ that are known and read by everybody, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, in spite of the fact that believers are the recipients of all blessings, all blessings in the heavenlies, superabounding grace. We don't even understand that. Superabounding grace, mercy, forgiveness, love, kindness, all blessings in the spiritual heavenlies have been poured upon us. In spite of the fact that believers have peace with God, that we have the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that we indeed have all sufficient standing in grace and hope in eternity, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. People will still doubt, in spite of the fact that believers have overcome the world, that we have overcome the devil, that we've been given eternal names by Christ, that we've been made pillars in the temple of God and have been given the promise of royal robes of eternal righteousness. And beloved, we could go on and on and on with a multitude of blessings that are spelled out to us in the Scriptures. But in spite of all of these blessings, all these lavish blessings, all these lavish mercies uh, that God has poured out on us, in spite of all these things, many people will still wonder about the security of their salvation and they will, in fact, lack assurance. And hence, we're talking about these things, knowing our salvation and having assurance of our salvation. Now, the question is, why? Why do people lack assurance? We began, we looked at first the first three reasons, and I want to run past you three more reasons this morning. Let's quickly review the first three. Uh, why people lack assurance? They lack assurance, first of all, because they may be sitting under very strong, convicting preaching. Preaching that requires them to uh, look at God's standard. Preaching that requires them to look at their sin. And they see a tremendous performance gap between where they ought to be and where they are. And that can lead someone, and especially that can lead a, a, a Christian who is sinning, that can lead them to wonder and to doubt about their salvation. They can have some doubts. Powerful, confrontive kind of preaching produces anxious hearts, and especially in the lives of sinning Christians. People will sit there and they'll wonder, am I saved? Am I really saved? Am I really saved? Because they're forced to look at the truth of God's Word and so forth. Secondly, we said that some people will uh, lack assurance because they can't accept forgiveness. This is an important issue. A lot of people can't really accept forgiveness. They can't even, can't even grasp the kind of forgiveness that God offers, let alone accept that forgiveness. They are largely tyrannized by their emotions. And because they, uh, their emotions are so strong, uh, they have a feeling that they are too bad to be forgiven. God can't possibly forgive me. I've been such a bad person. And again, we find ourselves fixed on, on, on God's law. We find ourselves fixed on God's holiness and God's righteousness and his righteous standard and our conscience constantly, along with those other elements, those, our conscience constantly uh, assails us. And remember, conscience knows nothing of what? Forgiveness. The law of God knows nothing of what? Forgiveness. Um, righteousness, justice, all these dynamics 
know nothing of forgiveness. They know nothing of mercy. They know nothing of grace. And so when you hang out only with the law of God, when you hang out only with righteousness, when you hang out only with the Sermon on the Mount, you can, or the law of God, you can be under a huge pile and you can find it very, very difficult to uh, accept forgiveness in your life. Again, uh, because you don't believe that you can be forgiven. You fall way, way far short of God's standard of holiness. The third reason, we said that uh, some people will have uh, difficulty with assurance is because they do not understand the gospel and the plan of salvation. Many Christians think they understand it, but many do not, in fact, understand the gospel. They do not understand the gospel, the good news of God, and the plan of salvation. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, they don't understand the full sufficiency. Listen to the words I'm using. They don't understand the full sufficiency of Jesus' death for sin. Is Jesus' death for sin sufficient for all sin? Every sin ever? Absolutely. Perfect sacrifice. But a lot of Christians don't understand that. They don't understand the extent of God's mercy. They don't understand the extent of God's grace and God's forgiveness. And I confess to you, it blows my mind thinking about His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and the extent of it. It knows no bounds. It knows no limits. And again, many people will doubt and lack assurance about their salvation because they don't understand these very fundamental basic truths. They don't understand how the justice of God is fully and completely satisfied in the death of Christ. Fully and completely satisfied. If they would only understand the truth of the gospel, they could have assurance. They could rest. They could enjoy uh, their assurance. If you believe that you have to, to perform for God in order to maintain your salvation, then assurance is going to be impossible for you. If I've got to keep jumping through the hoops to keep my salvation up, keep my salvation up, keep maintaining my salvation, then you're not going to be able to enjoy assurance because what? You're not going to be able to perform perfectly. And you've got to perform perfectly in order to, according to that perspective, if you are to maintain your salvation. If your assurance is based on how you feel. One day I feel saved. One day I don't feel saved. Again, my emotions are all over the map, aren't they? And if, it, if my assurance, if my salvation depends upon how I feel, again, feelings are not dependable and I'll not have assurance. If you believe you can lose your salvation, you'll never have full assurance. A lot of people are, are, are unsure. They think they can lose it. And if you, if you believe that, if you believe you can lose your salvation, you're never going to have assurance. You'll never be able to rest in the assurance that God has done a marvelous work for you. And we'll talk more about this. But if the gospel is completely understood, then the assurance of the promise of the gospel can be enjoyed. I can, in effect, exhale. I can rest. I can enjoy that which God has purchased for me and that great gift of salvation. Now remember, assurance, this is important, assurance is a personal conviction. It's a personal conviction that is rational, not emotional. Rational being that it is built on the historical reality of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That's the fundamental truth. Jesus died on the cross. He, his death completely, fully satisfied God's demand for justice. Completely paid for all my sins. 
My assurance is based on that. It's a rational, objective truth. It's not just something emotional. Very, very important. It's your conviction. Now, there's an element of the gospel truth that I want to talk about specifically that will complete uh, this third point. I didn't get to get to it last week. Uh, and this is, this is a, a major, major importance. I left it out, and I want to address it uh, this week. And that is the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a major, major element of the gospel truth. This is the heart and soul of understanding the fact of security. If I am to be secure, if I am to believe that I'm secure, I must then understand what the resurrection implies, what it provides for me. This is the very foundation, if you will, of assurance. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the proof positive the, the proof positive that the Lord's work on the cross uh, effected, finished a salvation that is eternally secure. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The key to security and therefore the key to assurance, the cornerstone of it all, if I can use that phrase to describe it, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You can know about the cross. You can take refuge in the cross. But beloved, the resurrection, you must understand the importance and that the resurrection is, in fact, the key, the cornerstone of all of this. You say, why is that so? Why is the resurrection so important? Because the resurrection attested to the truthfulness of Jesus' claims. Jesus simply made two claims. First of all, he claimed that he was God. Did he not? He said he was God. And beloved, he rose from the dead to prove it. He rose from the dead to prove it. Secondly, he claimed that he had come to save. Didn't he? I didn't come to what? To be served, but what? To serve and to save, right? He claimed he came to save us. And so the Father raised him from the dead, the Bible says, to approve of his work, his saving work, and to affirm he had indeed accomplished it. If he failed to come out of that grave, if he failed to come out of the tomb, he wasn't who he claimed to be, nor did he accomplish that which he claimed he would accomplish. If he's still in the tomb, he's not God. If he's still in the tomb, then he did not accomplish, he did not uh, purchase for us a full and final salvation in absolute total forgiveness of our sins. But I'm here to tell you he rose from the dead. And his resurrection attests to the truth of those two claims. He is who he says he is, and he accomplished that which he said he would accomplish. That is, beloved, the bottom line. That is the bottom line. If he was God, and he had the power over death, as he claimed, and if he accomplished perfectly the redemptive work, and the Father raised him from the dead, then we have confidence that salvation was fully accomplished. Fully accomplished. Everything that Jesus Christ claimed, and everything he came to do, was validated by the resurrection. Validated by the resurrection. It displayed God's power over death for sinners. What did I just say? It displayed God's power over death for sinners. Paul says in Romans, he died to sin once for all. Didn't he? The Bible says he, this, this, this death was once for all. Once for all. Never to die again. What's true of Christ 
If you're a believer, now is true of you. That's the essence of what Paul teaches in Romans. In fact, when you read about the power that was exhibited in Christ, it is usually associated with his resurrection. Listen to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. He's, he's praying. He, pr- he prays a couple of prayers. And by the way, if you, if, you, if you study the prayers of Paul for the churches, they're marvelous prayers, and they will enhance your own particular prayer life. But he says in the midst of this prayer, he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, why does he want the eyes of their heart enlightened? What is the issue that he has in mind that they understand more fully? In order that you may know what? Know the hope to which he has called you. Now, what hope is that? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What's he talking about? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about all the blessings that he spoke about earlier in chapter 1. All the blessings in heavenly realms. He says, I pray, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know these things. Kind of sounds like Peter's saying, doesn't it? Peter says, uh, be eager to make sure, make certain. He goes on and he says that uh, this hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power, notice this, his incomparably great power for us. For us. God is working on our behalf by his great mighty power. Isn't that, isn't that marvelous? you have confidence in that? If you don't have confidence, then you need to have somebody pray this prayer for you. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This, this great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. That is the power of God, and beloved, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Please note this, is the same power that makes alive the spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and it was God's power that raised us from the dead, just as he raised Jesus from the dead physically. It's the same power. The resurrection is a historical fact. It's a historical, it happened in time and space and history. It's a historical fact that shows that God can raise one who bears sin from the dead, and God can not only raise that one who bears sin from the dead, but he can exalt that person in heaven. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that marvelous? Now, follow my logic here. If God can raise one from the dead, didn't he raise one from the dead? Who was that? Jesus. And he exalted him at the right hand by his mighty power? Now, follow my thinking here. Then God can see a sinner... God can see a sinner who bears much less sin than the crucified Christ bore. Did Christ bear more sin than you and I? He bore all of our sins, right? So if he bore all of our sins, if he was made to be sin for us, all of that sin, and God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand, then don't you think that God could look at a sinner who bears much less sin than Christ bore on the cross. And don't you think that God can exalt that sinner 
to his own right hand just as he did his own son? Think about that. Isn't that marvelous? In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, speaking of Christ, he was delivered, notice this, he was delivered over to death for our sins. That's the first half of the equation. Now notice the second half of the equation. And he was raised to life for our what? Justification. How many remember the play on that word justification or justified? God looks at you just as if you'd never sinned. That's how he looks at you. Now, I don't know about you. That blows my mind. I have a very difficult time getting my mind around that that concept, that reality. If Jesus completely covered our sins in his death, he completely secured our eternal life in his resurrection. Completely. If you paid for all my sins in his death, final payment, total justice satisfied, then in his resurrection he completely secured my salvation. As completely as his death has dealt with our past, so completely does his resurrection deal with our future. If Jesus took all my sins, if he paid the penalty for all of them, and God took him into heaven, then God will take me into his heaven whose sins Jesus paid for. Isn't that marvelous? And if anyone, anyone is to be held accountable for my sins, who should be held accountable for my sins? Who should be held accountable for my sins? Huh? Me? Am I accountable for my sins? I'm not accountable for my sins. Who's accountable for my sins? Jesus! If anybody should be held accountable for my sins, it's not me. It's the one who said he would take them. Get your mind around that one. He's accountable for my sins. Does that blow your mind? does mine. Beloved, and since that has already been settled, you say, how has it already been settled? He is seated in heaven. It's a settled issue. Why? He's seated in heaven. It's a done deal. It's all finished. That's what he said on the cross. Because he's already seated at the right hand of God, so will I be seated there as well. That's why we need not worry. No matter how sinful we've been, we need not worry because his forgiveness encompasses all of that. All of that. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is an interesting interesting passage. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Timothy, speaking of God, who has saved us, God has saved us. Remember, Paul or Peter says salvation is of God. Who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of what? His own purpose and His grace. On what basis have we saved? Because of we're so cute? Huh? We're so lovable? No. When did God save us? According to Romans chapter 5, when did he save us? When we were at our worst. When we hated God. When we were his enemies. That's when he saved us. But he saved us, according to Paul's words here, according to his own purpose and grace. Isn't this marvelous? 
This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our, what? Of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Now notice this. Who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He has abolished what? Death. What has he brought? Life and immortality through the gospel. Somebody say hallelujah. That excites me. That excites me. So, may I suggest to you, it is essential then for us to understand that in the death of Christ, you have the penalty of sin paid for. Are we agreed there? And in the resurrection of Christ, you have the affirmation now of that total payment. In other words, next to your name in God's book in heaven are stamped these words. Who knows what the words are? Paid in full. Paid in full. I like that. I like that. And if my sins are totally paid for, if that's really true, then guess what? There is no sin that can keep me out of heaven. Does that make sense? There's no sin that can keep me out of heaven if all of my sins are already forgiven, totally paid for. Heavenly, do you like that? Isn't that wonderful? So an objective understanding, an objective understanding of the full forgiveness provided in the perfect death and resurrection of Christ, beloved, that is the ground, that is the basis, that is the foundation of our security, and security is the basis, is the ground, is the foundation of our assurance. Am I secure? Yes. Why? Because he paid for all my sins. Not only that, he was raised from the dead to affirm that the payment was finally and fully accepted. I have assurance. You see how important the resurrection is? Absolutely. If I believe the gospel is true, and I believe the gospel, then I can enjoy my assurance. I can rest. I can rest. I can enjoy that which God has provided for me. Let me take it a step further. John says a marvelous thing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, in effect, that assurance is inherent in saving faith. Let me say that again. Assurance is inherent in saving faith. Look what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I write these things to you who believe in Jesus. So that you may, what's this, what's the next word? Know that you have eternal life. Why does he write these things? So that we may know that we have, what? Eternal life. He says, I want you who believe to know that inherent, inherent in your believing is your assurance because that in which you believe is a secure salvation. So if we understand the gospel, and if we understand its eternal character and the full sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross as evidenced in the resurrection and his being seated at the right hand of the Father, if we understand that, then we can understand that we have indeed a secure, secure salvation in which all of our sins are paid for and we need not fear at all that we're going to lose anything we are secure. And if we believe in that true work of Christ, and if we believe in Christ, we can know and we can be assured. So, the importance of the resurrection. Now let me move on to the reason number four why people will still doubt, 
still doubt that they, that they are saved, still wonder, still have some measure of insecurity. Because they don't know the exact time of their salvation. They don't know the exact time of their salvation. Now that may ring a bell with some of you. You can't remember exactly when it was that you believed. You can't remember the moment of your salvation. And some people, because they can't remember when it was, then they wonder whether it was. It's kind of like saying, because I can't remember my birthday, I'm not sure I'm alive. (laughs) I can't remember the time my plane landed, so I'm not sure I'm here. (laughs) See, we've been conditioned. We've been conditioned, nearly all of us as Christians and certainly pastors, when we give an invitation, we offer somebody a prayer, and all of our tracks have a prayer to pray, don't they? And sometimes we, 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 we fall into this, this dynamic, if you will, this automatic kind of, of decisional regeneration thinking that you, you make this decision at this particular moment that automatically makes you a Christian when in fact all of us know that that's not necessarily the case. How many understand that salvation really is a process? Now there may be some of us who can identify a clear moment a clear moment, we drove a stake in the ground and we said, that's the moment I believe. There's that point of demarcation which I left off the old life and I began my new life. And, but I'm going to suggest to you that the vast majority of people that's not the case. We want to point to a time. We want to have an identifiable time. And again, we are conditioned to this because we have placed in the Christian church through our methods of evangelism, we have placed a great deal of emphasis on praying a prayer at some point and that prayer, that prayer being the moment of salvation. Are you following me? You see, if you don't have that little identifiable moment, if you can't point it out, then you're not able to identify when it happened, so maybe it never happened. Now, there is some point in time when you're saved, and for some people, uh, this is very true. There was a very decisive moment for those people. But I'm going to suggest that that's not the majority of us. But there are some people who had a very, very decisive moment in which they exercised their faith in Jesus Christ. But for many people, particularly those raised in a Christian environment, particularly those, those of us who have been part of the church for years and raised our kids in a church, and maybe you were raised in a church, and you can't think of a time when you necessarily made a specific decision. And we interview the, our young people when they get baptized uh, with, with all the other people we interview, and some, some people you hear these stark testimonies of, of, a, of, a, of a life that was full of drugs and, and all manner of sin and foolishness and depravity. And then, and then you get some young person, because that's just, and, and when did you become a Christian? I was always a Christian. I always believed. I mean, my son, he's been raised in the church. He's been, he's a a PK. He's a pastor's son. Of course he believes. And so we, we'd have this conversation a number of times and he would hear these testimonies. He knows my, my, of my sinful past, some of it. And, uh, (laughs) And so 
you know, he'll wonder himself sometimes. And I've talked to other young young believers in the church uh, who've been raised in the faith, and, and, and they can't identify that particular moment. So they wonder, am I really saved? Do, do, and and, and they'll have, they'll, they want to pray the prayer. They want to make sure. They want to drive a stake in the ground to identify a moment that they can hang on to because we've conditioned them to that. Even though you may not know the time when you did not believe, when you when you did not believe, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. The exact time is not the issue. The exact moment is not the issue in identifying it. But if that is the expectation, then you can see how some people would have reason to doubt and to lack assurance of their salvation because they can't identify that moment. So if you don't have a, a past event, if you don't have that moment to give you assurance that you are saved, what, what then tells you that you did in fact pass from death to life? Because we're all born, what? Slaves of sin. We're all born dead to God, right? We're all conceived in sin. So then what gives me assurance if I don't have a particular moment? What is it that I look for that gives me assurance that I pass from death to life? What is it, do you think? How are you living? A present pattern of life. That's what we look for. A present pattern. But I've always been a good person. I've always done what was right. Yeah, but do you know why you're doing it? <laughs> do you understand the gospel? There are some people, by the way, at this particular juncture, who have a false assurance, a false assurance, they can remember a past event. They can remember that particular moment when they prayed that prayer. But the reality is, there isn't any present righteousness. So they do have a false assurance. That's an important thing to remember. So some people lack assurance because they, they very simply uh, can't remember. They don't have that time in their mind where they actually believed. But believe, believe me, salvation is a process. There's a fifth reason people lack assurance is because they still feel the flesh strongly and they wonder if they are a new creation. Now, I know all of us can relate to this one, to one degree or another. We still feel that, that sinful, fallen flesh and the pull of that flesh. Now, most of the time, we want to blame who? The devil. We want to blame the devil, but it's, it starts with us. It's sin. It's sin in the flesh. This flesh is, is absolutely rebellious. That's why it's not going to heaven. It'll pollute heaven. That's why we've got to have a new body. So there are people who feel so strongly the pull of this unredeemed flesh. Because you see, we are a new creation. The Bible says if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. But you're, you're a new creation spiritually, but you're incarcerated, you're locked up in this sinful, fallen human nature, I call it an earth suit. And it's a weak earth suit, this unredeemed humanness. And we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies, are we not? We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies when Jesus Christ comes back and we'll have what Paul calls in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, the glorious freedom of the children of God. What is that? When we get liberated from our unredeemed flesh. But as long as we are fighting the battle that Paul identifies in Romans chapter 7, how many know that battle? 
How many can relate to why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why can't I do the things I want to do? Can anybody else relate to that besides me and a few others? As long as we're fighting that battle, as long as we see the flesh in us warring against us, do you see the battle between the spirit and the flesh? Paul identifies it also in Galatians chapter 5, doesn't he? As long as we see that battle, it is possible for us to wonder if, in fact, I have a new nature at all. And sometimes the battle with sin in the flesh can be so furious as to really cause you to question, am I really a Christian? What a wretch I am if people really knew what I was like. You ever wonder that? A couple of you. Okay, good. I'm not alone. That is what I think that Peter has in mind in verse 8 of our passage of, uh, in, in chapter 1 of, of, of Second Peter. In verse 8, he talks about having these qualities. Now, we're going to study those qualities, but he says having these qualities, having these identifiable marks, these things that clearly speak to a new nature, indications of life, if you will. He says then you're going to have, if you don't have those in your life, you're going to lack confidence. You're going to lack assurance that you have indeed been cleansed. If sin is overpowering us, at any given point, then we will lack assurance. We're going to struggle with that. People sometimes wonder, did I repent enough? Was I sorry enough for my sin? And I, I hear this time and time again. People who, who lack assurance and they're wondering, did, did I really repent enough? Was I sorry enough for my sin? Did I exhibit enough faith? Beloved, you can never repent enough. You can never be sorry enough. And you can never have enough faith. We are weak, are we not? But what people are doing when they're focusing on those things is they are focusing on the unredeemed flesh rather than on the new life. Most people will typically read the Romans 7 battle in a negative light rather than a positive light. Oh, why can't I do what I want to do? Why do I do what I don't want to do? Oh, woe is me. Wretched man that I am, right? That's the negative light. But you can also read that passage in a positive light. What's the positive light? The positive light is the fact that you even have the battle and that you care about it. Indicates what? I have life. What should then I focus on? What should I accentuate then? The negative? No, the positive. See, you have to see in you that, that things, things in you that are indicative of new life. The very fact that I'm having the battle. The very fact that I care is indicative of new life in me. Do you have any sense at all in you, if you're going through this struggle, that you, that you, did you delight in God's Word? You say, well, I don't read it as much as I, that's not what I asked you. Do you delight in God's Word? Yes. I didn't ask you how you're performing, just do you have, do you have a delight in it? Do you, do you look at it and say, oh God, this is good stuff. I should read it more. <laughs> do you have a, the will to do what is right? Well, I don't always do it. I didn't ask if you always did what was right. I said, do you have the will to do what is right? That's an indication of what? Life. That's an indication of life. 
Do you love God? Oh, yes, but not like you should. I didn't ask you if you love him like you should. I said, do you love him? None of us loves like we should. I love my wife, but I don't love her like I should. I love her more and more every day, but not like she deserves. You hate sin? Ah, I hate sin, but not like I should. I didn't ask you that. (laughs) Are you with me? Can you follow what I'm saying? Am I making sense to you? Do you desire to obey God? Oh, yes, I desire, but I I don't care if you didn't do it right. The fact that you desire to obey God, the fact that you acknowledge God, even though you see the flesh, the battle, the battle in all these things, beloved, is indicative of the fact that you have a new nature warring against that flesh. But if you have become preoccupied with the flesh, and that's your focus solely, and sin begins to overwhelm you and overpower you because it will, then you're going to struggle with that. Focusing on the flesh is not a healthy thing to do. Turn to your neighbor. Tell him, focusing on the flesh is not a healthy thing to do. (laughs) Tell her. (laughs) Would you agree? But what do we typically do? We typically focus on what? The flesh, not the things of the Spirit. Let me read to you a quote. One of the commentators I read, one of the, this, this marvelous quote, he says this. He says, now test yourself in this way. You once lived in sin and loved it. Do you now desire deliverance from it? Who can say amen? <laughs> you were once self-confident and trusting in your own fancy goodness. Do you now, do you now judge yourself a sinner before God? You once sought to hide from God and rebelled against His authority. Do you now look up to Him, desiring to know Him and to yield yourself to Him? If you can honestly say yes to these questions, you have repented. Your attitude is altogether different from what it once was. You confess you are a sinner, unable to cleanse your own soul, and you're willing to be saved in God's way. That's repentance. And remember, it is not the amount of repentance that counts. It is the fact that you have turned from self to God that puts you in the place where His grace avails now through Jesus Christ. Strictly speaking, he says, not one of us has ever repented enough. None of us has realized the enormity of our guilt as God sees it. But when we judge ourselves and trust the Savior whom He has provided, we are saved through His merits. As recipients of His loving kindness, repentance will be deepened and will continue day by day as we learn more and more of His infinite worth and our own unworthiness. I don't know about you, but that's very helpful. That is very helpful. He says, just test yourself. Just test yourself. Do you have the impulses of a new nature? Do you have the impulses of a new nature? Why? Because that's indicative of salvation. That you have these impulses. You have these desires. You have these longings. You might want, you might want to, to remind somebody who, and we all know people who struggle in this area. And you might just want to remind them of this fact. That in the midst of their struggle, wondering whether they've really been saved, 
uh, because what? They see so much sin in their life. You can very simply remind them, is there a change of attitude? Are there new impulses? Is there something different about your life? Are there inclinations towards God? And if they, if they answer in the affirmative, you can encourage them. Those are all indications of new life and hence salvation. That's the difference, beloved. That's the difference. A change of attitude gives me heart assurance, heart assurance that I am indeed a child of God. By second birth, no matter how strong the pull of sin, I am a child of God by second birth. God's will has become my highest joy and, beloved, submission to his lordship, my greatest delight. Can we say that together? Absolutely. So, some lack assurance, we said, because what? They sit under strong, convicting preaching. Preaching that, that, uh, that causes them to, to doubt their, their salvation, especially if they're sinning. Some lack assurance because of an inability to accept forgiveness. Some lack assurance because they fail to understand the rich truth of the gospel. Some lack assurance because of an inability to remember the time of their salvation. Some lack assurance because of the remaining power of their unredeemed flesh. And this is the sixth one that I want to talk to you about this morning, the sixth reason. This is so very, very important. Some lack assurance because they don't see the hand of God in all their trials. This is so important. They don't see the hand of God in all their trials. How many times have we heard this? How many times have we thought this? How many times maybe have we said this? How could God love me and let me go through this? Sometimes our circumstances, the grief of it all, the, 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 the struggle, the trial can cause you if you don't know the truth and aren't understanding of the truth, can cause you to doubt, in fact, God's love, and hence your assurance. Does that make sense? How could God love me and take my husband? How could God love me and take my wife? How could God love me and take my child? How could God love me and not hear my prayer? How could God love me and not deliver me? How many... How many have anguished in a, in a trial, in the deepest, darkest valley, prayed and prayed and seen no deliverance come and say, oh God, how could you love me? Let me go through this. You see how that can cause you to doubt whether you're really a Christian? Doubt assurance, doubt that he loves you, doubt that he cares. And you find yourself casting about. You, you, you have no, no anchor for your soul in that sense. People who think like that, now stay with me, people who think like that not only sentence themselves to lack of assurance, and mark this please, mark this, but they miss the very strongest source of assurance. They miss the very strongest source of assurance. And what is the very strongest source of assurance? Tested faith. Tested faith. How many of you agree we need our, fa our faith tested? How many of you, it's not your favorite thing? <laughs> How many of us hang back and dread it? You know, we don't want to step up. Goes, oh, oh. This is the very strongest source of assurance. 
tested faith. When I have trouble, when I have grief, when I have trials, things don't go the way I want them to go, I question God, I question His love, I question my salvation. I not only lose my assurance, but I am failing. I am failing the very test that could be for me the strongest proof of my salvation and my assurance. I need these in my life. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, I've got some verses for you. You know me. Romans chapter 5. Turn to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see these verses. The first four verses of Romans chapter 5. By the way, when you read these verses, all the verbs and all the participles are in the perfect tense. This is, this is a clear statement of assurance because they're all in, in the Greek, in the perfect tense. He says, therefore, based on what I've told you up to this point, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, perfect tense, we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, perfect tense, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, perfect tense, into this grace in which we now stand, perfect tense, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now notice this. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our what? Sufferings. Now, why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Because we what? We know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope immediately translates into assurance. The biblical term for hope is confident. It's not a, a weak wishing. Well, I hope. When you see these, this word hope like in this context, it's another, it's another word. It's confidence. It immediately translates into assurance. If I have a solid hope of my eternal inheritance, I have a present assurance. And where do I get that hope? Where do I get this hope? When my faith is tested and my faith is proven. It's not a mere, a mere intellectual assenting to. It's a tested and proven faith. That is such an essential truth. We do not really embrace suffering, do we? It's very human and very natural for us to resist it, to run from it, to flee from it, to hate it, to despise it. But in the reality, the Bible says, we are to what in the midst of it? Rejoice. Why? Because God's using it for our good, isn't he? Building into us perseverance, character, hope, assurance. Turn to James. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. James says much the same thing. He talks to us about the value of trials, affliction. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Is that what we typically do? Do we consider it pure joy? We go, oh, God, all right. Hallelujah, another chance, another opportunity to have my faith tested and proven and to be more secure. Is that what we do? No, no, not typically. Oh, God, oh, why is this happening to me? Bummer, bummer, bummer. 
I mean, you're going to have to go through it anyway. Rather than be miserable, might as well be joyful. <laughs> Make the most of it. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance. And perseverance, he says, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. That includes assurance. That you be mature. A mature believer is confident. Doesn't lack assurance. Trials of life should never cause us to doubt God's love, God's salvation, God's grace in Christ. They are simply given to us as tests to prove His love and to prove His faithful power on our behalf. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Let you see this also. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Again, speaking of God, the writer of the Hebrews says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help Him. He says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your what? Your hope sure. Beloved, God is putting us through trials, through difficulties, and we are to be diligent, and we are to be patient, and the result of that diligence is full assurance of hope. Trials are the very crucible. Trials are the very crucible in which assurance is formed. Turn lastly to Romans chapter 8. We looked at this passage last week. I want to revisit it. This is probably the premier text on assurance. Look at verses 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Remember, Paul went through all those things, didn't he? Went through all those trials. He said, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. He says, in all these things, we are not just victims. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now look at verse 38. After saying all that, that leads him to this conclusion. What is it? He says, for I am what? I am convinced. I am convinced, he says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present no, the future. Anything in the present life. Anything in the future. Neither height nor death nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I'm convinced, he says. Paul, what convinced you? What convinced you? What convinced you? All that he went through. All that he went through. His entire life. His total experience. Beloved, trials become... Trials become the source of your confidence. They become the source of your greatest confidence. Understand the place that trials play. Understand the place that struggles play. Understand the place that trouble plays in our life. And rather than looking at those things in a negative sense and doubting God and doubting your relationship with Him, look at it that God is working through those things to make you stronger, richer, testing your faith, perfecting your faith, so that you will know your assurance. Does that make sense? Let me conclude with this last quote. As one walks with God and learns to suffer and endure as seeing Him who is invisible, 
eternal things will become more real than the things of time and sense, which are everything to the merely natural man. Thus there comes to the heart a trustful calm, a full assurance based not alone upon the revealed Word, but upon a personal knowledge of communion with God, which gives implicit confidence as to this present life and all that lies ahead. You will have assurance, knowing that those trials, knowing that those troubles, God is using them, working them in your life to mature you, that you may have indeed a full assurance. Now, I have two more, but we'll have to save those till next time. So, shall we pray? Lord, thank you again for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you for your abundant forgiveness to us, Lord. Thank you that we have absolute confidence in you. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to lean on our own understanding, our own strength, but it's your strength by your spirit that you give us. Thank you, Lord, that you help us in our weakness. Thank you, Lord, for your great goodness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.